This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. The Berkeley Forum is thrilled to partner with GSPP on this or on this event today. The Berkeley Forum is a student-run, nonpartisan organization here at Cal that hosts talks, panels, and debates on our campus. Driven by students, for students, our members work tirelessly throughout the semester to enhance intellectual discussion on campus by bringing speakers to talk about the most urgent ideas of our time. If you're interested in finding out more about us, you can follow us on Facebook or find us on our website at forum.berkeley.edu, where you can also look into our crowdfunding campaign that we're doing during the month of October if you're interested in seeing more events like this one. I'm now pleased to introduce Didi Van Lobensels, who is a member of the Cal Class of 1968 and the co-chair with, the Bob, with Bob Wong of the Center of Civility and Democratic Engagement Advisory Board. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Haley. It's very exciting to have the Berkeley Forum and the Cal Class of 68, a span of 50 years, welcoming all of you today. This Class of 68 founded the Center on Civility and Democratic Engagement as our legacy project at the Goldman School of Public Policy, and we are your co-sponsor. Our class has been gathering quarterly for nearly 15 years, and we, you are welcome to attend our gatherings. We meet quarterly, enriching experiences with Berkeley professors, campus tours, and campus leaders, three times in Berkeley a year and one time in the South Bay and Marin. So please receive notice of these gatherings. Sign up as you leave today. You are welcome, and we'd love to have you join us. And thank you for coming and demonstrating your interest in civil discussion of pressing needs. And to continue your interests, please get involved and support the center, much needed Center on Civility and Democratic Engagement. And we want to thank our speakers, obviously, for being here today, which is, we so appreciate you giving your Saturday to all of us. And to thank Lynn Serta-Price, Hannah Young, and our Cal of 68 classmates, Peter Munoz and Dan Lindheim, for making today happen. Now to introduce our moderator. He is the faculty director of the Center on Civility and Democratic Engagement and teaches at the Goldman School of Public Policy. Our classmate, our Cal classmate, has a bachelor's, two masters, and a PhD from Cal. He focused on economics, urban planning, and public health. He was even on the Cal tennis team. And he has a law degree from Georgetown. That wasn't enough. Dan has a diverse background in both the public and private sectors, a very abbreviated list. He was CEO of two high-tech software companies, worked as a World Bank economist and a senior advisor to committees of the House of Representatives, and most recently, he was Oakland's city administrator. Pretty amazing, right? Um, I suggest you read more about Dan on the Goldman's Web, school website. Thank you, Dan, for telling us more about the Center on Civility and Democratic Engagement and for being our moderator. 
Actually, what that all goes to show is that if you know how to hustle, you can uh, get a lot of degrees while you're actually working full time. (laughs) The center's mission stems from a fundamental tenet of the class of 68, that real public participation coupled with meaningful public debate is critical for democracy. The center promotes debate through research, teaching, fellowships, internships, public events, and encourages current and future leaders to engage people of different backgrounds and different views in the development and resolution of public policy. I want to give one note about the title of this panel. Um, Obviously, this is not a panel of white working class voters. Um, This is an academic discussion where academics talk about what they have studied about white academic voters. Um, We got a note in the Facebook page from one of my former students saying, hey, Dan, where are all the white working class voters on your panel? So anyway, I just wanted to say that we weren't, um, we're aware of that discrepancy. I just want to give you some sense of how this is going to play out. Um, We're going to hear first from each of the panelists, uh, and then we will have two questions from the um, Berkeley Forum, from students from the Berkeley Forum, and then after that we'll have this moderated conversation, and then there'll be Q&A from the audience. So hold your questions at least until we get to that point. So our first panelist is Arlie Hochschild. She's Professor Emerita in the Department of Sociology here at Cal. She's written more than 10 books. I was trying to add them all up, and I had a hard time because, anyway, there there were more than 10. Uh, She's done field work and written about older residents of a low-income housing project, about flight attendants, about bill collectors, working parents trying to divide housework and childcare corporate employees dealing with a culture of workaholism, and Filipina nannies who left their children behind in order to care for children here in the United States. Her recent book, Strangers in Their Own Land, Anger and Mourning in the American Right, was based on five years of intensive interviews with Tea Party enthusiasts in Lake Charles, Louisiana. Her book received high acclaim. It was a finalist for the National Book Award, and Both the book and Arlie have been at the center of a raging debate about the appropriate future of American politics. Many of our board members read her book, and there was actually a groundswell from the board of the Class of 68 to absolutely insist on inviting Arlie, and that is why she is here, and I'd like to call her to the podium. Thank you. Thanks very much, Dan. Um, I'm... uh Delighted to be here and um, to put together both the culture of the class of 1968 here at Berkeley with the idea of um, civil discourse across um, a very powerful divide. Um, I thought what I'd do in my minutes with you here is first to um, share with you a journey that I have just returned from, uh, and then to pick up the whole issue of whether, in fact, the use of talking across this wide divide, um, and 
uh, who we should talk to and how we should talk to them. That, so I'd like to t- share the journey and then tell you my thoughts after that. Five, in 2011, I really had a sense, as I think we all did, sort of um, finger to the wind, whoa, there is a growing right wing. And I realized I didn't know anyone who was ardently right wing, that I was in a bubble, uh, both the geographic one as a citizen of Berkeley, a uh, media bubble, I read the New York Times religiously, and an electronic bubble as we our computers give us back to ourselves. So I thought, uh, I don't know what's going on, but everything I've spent my life working on is now in danger, and I, I don't get it. So I decided to try and locate a bubble that was as far right as I think sociology department at UC Berkeley in the town of Berkeley is left and see if I could take my alarm system off and try and climb an empathy wall so I could really get a sense of the experiences uh, that are informing a view of the world, um, which I'm... uh, is not my own. So that took me to the south, where the right has grown the fastest, and then it took me to the super south, Louisiana. And then within Louisiana, it took me to the petrochemical center uh, in the southwest, um, around Lake Charles, Westlake, Sulphur. But I also wandered for over the five years, the whole south of the state and the mid parts of the state. So I brought with me a kind of a a question that is the red state paradox, familiar to us all. How could it be that it's the poorest states, the states with the most disrupted family, the worst education, the worst health care, the most road accidents, um, the lowest life expectancy, the most pollution, are also the states that receive more money from the federal government in aid than they give to it in tax dollars, and they revile the federal government. Uh, You know, wait a minute. If you have a problem, wouldn't you welcome some help? Louisiana turned out to be an exaggerated version of that red state paradox. Second poorest state... 44% of the state budget came uh, from the federal government and overwhelmingly uh, sympathetic to the Tea Party. So I thought I was just trying to find a little enclave of Tea Party right-wingers, but actually I discovered that it was a culture. Culture. I found myself within a general culture uh, that was suspicious of, of federal aid. So... I thought to myself, okay, um, perfect. I'm I'm where I need to be. Uh, And I began to realize that the sky was very gray, and if I drove to Westlake, my eyes would begin to sting, and that this was uh, one of the most polluted areas uh, in the country. But... uh, the residents uh, opposed regulations of industry. Um, 
so they're living with pollution and seem to oppose the idea or be suspicious of the idea of regulating the polluters. So I thought, again, perfect. Let me, this is what I don't get. And um, just to condense um, my journey here, what I realized in talking to people is that uh, that red state paradox, they knew it was there. They, they were not ignorant of, the, of it. But it, they just kind of set it aside. The way we do have a, a kind of a knowledge that we set aside. And what was rising up in its stead, uh, pushing that knowledge aside, was what I came to think of as a deep story. Now, what's a deep story? A deep story is what feels true to you about something important to you. You take facts out of the deep story. You take moral precepts out of the deep story. It's just what feels true. And I believe you know, the right has a deep story. I think the left does too. Uh, and that if we're really going to talk to each other, we have to talk deep story to deep story. Um, the right deep story can be told almost like a dream. Uh, where you're waiting in line, you're as in a pilgrimage, facing the top of the hill at which you see the American dream. And you feel a sense of deserving. Uh, you've worked extremely hard. You see yourself as law-abiding. And the line hasn't moved. People I talked to who were uh, blue-collar, a lot of them were uh, pipe fitters and uh, plumbers and electricians, uh, and they um, hadn't had a raise in two decades. So the line wasn't moving. And, but they're hopeful, and as they experienced themselves, didn't know animus toward anybody, but they just had their eye on that goal. And then, in the right-wing deep story, they see line cutters. Well, who, who would that be? That would be blacks who, through federally mandated affirmative action programs, finally and at last have access to jobs that have been historically reserved for whites. Even worse are women, 50% of the population, who, through the same federal legislation, finally have access to jobs uh, that have been historically reserved for men. I'm an example. And then um, immigrants, you know, undocumented and, and refugees. Um, and even animals they saw as cutting in line. They, they said, oh, these environmentalists, they put animals over people. Um, and then another moment of the right-wing deep story. It looks like the president, who should be impartially uh, supervising the line is waving at the line cutters. Oh, isn't he a line cutter too? So many people over the five years asked me, well, how did Barack Obama's mother afford a Harvard education? She wasn't a, a rich woman. Something fishy. And then that fit into a lot of paranoia that I experienced. Um, so then they felt kind of pushed back uh, in line and ignored. They felt um, uh, unrecognized. They felt their culture 
uh, wasn't the mainstream culture anymore. Their jobs had become more shaky. Religion, very fundamental to nearly everyone I talked to, they felt there's a secularization and, and churches were being put down. And, and then this. And the final moment of the right-wing deep story is that someone from Berkeley, someone from a coast, someone highly educated, gets and someone much closer to the American dream, turns around and says, oh, you racist, sexist, homophobic, fat, ignorant uh, redneck. And for them, that was that word redneck. That was, that was it. They felt insulted. They, their, all their work felt uh, unseen uh, in the eyes of, of people that they took to be on the other side of this partisan divide. So... Um, I went back to people and, uh, that I came to know. Does this make sense to you? One man said, you read my mind. Another one said, I live your metaphor. Others would say, well, no, you've left something out. Uh, it's the people who are waiting or the one paying taxes for the line cutters. So, uh, and so this, this is what I came back with. But you know, I... I came back with um, another paradox, and that is, went in with the red paradox, but uh, I came back with a blue state paradox. How could it be that the Democratic Party, the party of the working man and the working woman, is not speaking to anybody that I saw? That's... Our, my paradox, that's our paradox. And it's, um, it, it's, uh, it presents us with, uh, I think, an enormous task. I came back for my five years thinking, okay, how do we talk across this big divide? Uh, and I was getting emails. I couldn't believe my email of people that kind of wanted, they felt an urge to cross uh, this divide. Um, a, uh, one woman who was part of a, a parishioner in an Episcopal church in Massachusetts said, oh, could you set me up with a parish in Lake Charles so we can, can talk? Uh, there were people who said, can't we get student exchanges going? Um, Realizing that region, class, and race were the big dividers, that votes are hinged to those, don't we need to get more structural arrangements uh, to, uh, to allow us to talk to each other? So uh, we used to have a compulsory draft which put for men people of different social classes and races together. They got to know each other. And we used to have a vibrant union movement, which, again, for workers, put people of races and class together. Um, But we don't have those anymore. And I think what's happened today is that in the absence of those, uh, we're 
left to the leadership of a president who uh, has uh, no interest in fostering, I believe, uh, unity, and who um, provides a terrible model for uh, cross-partisan talk. We may differ on that. But, um, and in the absence of structural arrangements and the presence of a highly problematic model, I think we need to be the adults in the room. We need to be the ones that stand up and say, you know what, we can do this thing. That if you look at the public political discourse, uh, almost nada, um, people yell at each other and um, have kind of attack-defend modalities. And no alarm systems are off. No listening is happening. But there is a... uh, a nascent grassroots movement, I'm thrilled to say. And if you were to Google something called the bridgealliance.us, you would find it as an umbrella movement, um, umbrella organization that covers some 70, now 80 different organizations. They aren't this structural method, but there's something they'll do in the interim. Oh, they have funny names like High from the Other Side or uh, uh, Making Evening Dinner Again <laughs> um, and uh, Living Room Conversations, which I have done with our very own Joan Blades, the uh, Berkeley-based um, co-founder of MoveOn.org. She's a mediation lawyer and is and is leaving, leading... Uh, uh, such conversations. I've done one with her in my living room, getting left and right together. So um, let me just wind up here by saying that there is a, uh, a debate to have about the very role of crossover debate. Some people say, no, it, if, you're, if you're talking to the enemy, you're, you're, you're weak. Uh, and uh, it's it's hopeless. Frank Rich did a review of my book, and he said, oh, let these people just die of their votes, and poke shields too empathic, and, you know, hold on to your anger, and, uh, okay, I think he's mistaken. Um, there's the question of, if you decide to talk across the divide, who do you do it with? And I think... Uh, you're not going to do it with David Duke but uh, or the alt-right. But uh, there are, by some estimates, 8 million voters who in 2012 voted for Barack Obama and in 2016 voted uh, for Donald Trump. Maybe they'd be worth talking with. Um, there are, among white high school-educated Uh, men and women uh, estimates vary. One out of three uh, in one study, uh, one out of four in another, um, would have voted for Bernie Sanders. But since he didn't become the Democratic candidate, they voted for Donald Trump. Maybe these people would be interesting uh, to uh, see whether there are strips of common ground 
that can be be one. So um, I can say a little bit more about what I myself have learned about the psychological uh, tricks involved. I should say tricks, the wrong word, but methods um, for what I've come to call symbol stretching and symbol skipping (laughs) um, that do facilitate the possibility of dialogue. So I think there's something hopeful we can do, and I want us to do it. Thank you. Thank you. So Steve Hayward has become sort of everybody's now go-to conservative on campus, um, in part because he, in fact, is conservative, uh, in fact, because he happens to be a nice guy and one can talk to him. Um, He is the senior resident scholar at the Institute for Government Studies here at Cal. Uh, He's also a visiting lecturer at Berkeley Law, which is what Bolt School is now called. Uh, He was previously the Ronald Reagan Distinguished Visiting Professor at Pepperdine, and he was a visiting scholar in conservative thought and policy at the University of Colorado at Boulder. He was also a longtime fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and he's been a senior fellow at the Pacific Research Institute in San Francisco since 1991. He writes frequently for the New York Times, for the Washington Post, for the Wall Street Journal, National Review, Weekly Standard, and other publications. He is the author of six books, and I would like to welcome Steve to the podium. Well, thank you very much, Dan, and thanks for the Goldman School for putting this together and extending the invitation. I don't know how many of you here are Goldman supporters or alums or friends and supporters. Uh, I don't get up there as often as I would like to, mostly because I'm lazy and I'd prefer to walk downhill instead of uphill. Um, but when I do go there, I'm always astounded at the level of energy. It just It's as busy as Grand Central Station, and I'm always overwhelmed by it. That's not true of a lot of departments and programs, right? So uh, those of you who are friends of Goldman should be very proud of the place, uh, I think, um, even if it is a nest of liberals. Um, all that, it's a, it's a really great honor to share the stage with uh, Arlie. Um, Yeah, we have different viewpoints and could probably tangle a lot on particulars, and I actually hope we will at some point. Maybe not so much today, because there's a lot of overlap between what you think and I think. What's great about her book, and all of her books, I haven't read them all, I've just read a couple, but is that she practices a method I encourage to students. I teach mostly political philosophy and law, and I always say the first rule of interpretation, I think, whether you're talking about a thinker or another human being, is... The first thing you should try to do is understand the person as they understand themselves before you try to understand them differently or better. They may be mistaken, there may be defects, there may be bad motives or mixed motives, but figure out what they think first. Um, too often these days we default to our own cliches about people who disagree with us and interests and all the rest of that, and that actually stops a sensible public discussion and deliberation. So Arlie's book is... And, and, you know, spending, what, five years there, that's a model of how this ought to be done. Uh, I do think Louisiana is a strange place. I've thought about it a lot myself. I've only visited. I haven't done what Arlie's done. Um, 
it, oddly enough, it was one of the first of the Deep South states to break from the Democratic Party on the presidential level. It first voted for Dwight Eisenhower in 1956. Then it returned to the Democratic fold for a long time. Then Nixon wins, of course, in 72. Ronald Reagan wins it easily. Then Bill Clinton gets it back. Uh, and then the other thing I observe of it is it was the last of the Deep South states to turn wholly Republican. Uh, you know, it wasn't until just three years ago that the voters finally turned out the last Democratic senator, Mary Landrieu. Uh, and, you know, we'll see how this goes. I'm watching this Alabama election. You know, I'm a conservative Republican, but sometimes party loyalty is asking too much. And I'm not sure this Roy Moore guy is going to win. Latest poll this week, it's dead even, which is, in a certain way, that's a landslide for Democrats in Alabama these days, uh, to be dead even. But, you know, they've picked uh, one really crazy candidate. Um, I'll just add one more personal note. Uh, uh, I didn't attend Cal, neither did my wife. We like to think we're Cal boosters, though. My wife went to that little technical trade school down the peninsula in Palo Alto. (laughs) Yeah, right, there you go. Oh, it gets better. She played the trombone in that anarchist troupe they call a marching band. (laughs) Where she found herself in the end zone on a particular famous game, some of you may remember. And, you know, she was in a class with John Elway, who, as my wife reflected later, I'm so glad there wasn't social media in those days because the band was really unpopular, (laughs) right, on the campus. And she was in a class with John Elway, who said, you maniacs, actually he used a different adjective beginning with M, but you maniacs cost me the Heisman Trophy. So go Bears and run your side. So I'm glad I can bring a few smiles because uh, I want to approach this topic on a broader scale first and then focus down on the narrower question of the white working class. And my general theme is things are much worse than they seem. This is actually uh, not a new thought. It's an uh, expression of what I call Hayward's first law of insufficient paranoia, (laughs) which holds that no matter how bad things look on the surface, when you look closer, you find out things are usually worse. So I want to talk a little bit, I'm a political scientist, I'm going to do it this way. Uh, I've never done the on-the-ground one-on-one work that Arlie has, because um, social sci- uh, political scientists don't do that. Um, I'm struck by a couple of survey results of long-standing that ought to be on the mind and suggest the collapse of civic culture in this country that's been going on for quite a long time. Uh, one number that Gallup has been asking since the late 1950s, or one survey question is, do you have confidence in the federal government to do the right thing all the time or most of the time? Back in the late 50s, that number was 70 75% of people who said, yes, I have confidence in the federal government. For at least 15 years, that number has been around 15%. It struggles to get to 18%. If you look at the long-term trend line, which I think is what you try and do with consistent public opinion surveys, it blips up a couple of times. Once, ironically, is under Ronald Reagan when that line reverses and goes up for a while. And then, of course, for some months or a couple of years after 9-11, when there's the rally around the country atmosphere, that, of course, proved evanescent, uh, as I thought it would. Um, By the way, I don't have time today. I have Hayward's second law of symmetric paranoia I can tell you about, too, but that's another one. Uh, So there's that. Um, Now, it turns out that the surveys also ask, what do you think of state and local government? And those numbers are higher. People have higher confidence in state government higher confidence in local government. 
Uh, and I think that's um, uh, I, not surprising. I think it's government's closer to where people live, and they you can actually meet your representatives and, and executives uh, more directly. Uh, on the other hand, we're seeing a collapse of the civic culture on the local level. With the turnout for the last mayor's election in Los Angeles, I think, was 18% of eligible voters. Philadelphia and New York also had, I think it was 28% in New York for Mayor de Blasio. Let me say more about that in a bit, but that's a really remarkable thing. The number that really ought to bother us, and this one predates Trump. It's been growing for a while. We know as a general matter that the surveys show declining trust in institutions. People are increasingly uh, uh, lack confidence in churches, big business, universities, the police. Uh, the military holds up pretty well. Um, uh, courts, lawyer, go on down the list, right? It's uh, all sort of gone down. Um, so it's not just government or Washington that people are getting skeptical of. But there's one question that really jumps out at me. Do you have trust or confidence in your fellow citizens? That number used to be 70% yes. Now it's getting close to 60% no. In other words, it's not just institutions that we're doubting now. We're doubting each other. As I say, I, I think it needs to be no. I'm not, that's a superficial number. I'm not happy with it. I, I don't want to overstate it. And it's, that's the kind of phenomenon that's very hard to figure out with follow-up surveys, although I think it really needs to. Uh, but the general point, I think, stands. Uh, when we come to think of each other as wholly alien, we lose the capacity to be fellow citizens. So that's point one. I have three points here. The second point is demographics. So uh, the white working class is the swing vote in American politics, at least in electoral terms. Let's look at the states where they made the difference this year. Uh, The white vote as a whole, forget stratifying from working class, middle class, professional class. It used to be about 80% of the electorate back when Ronald Reagan wins in 1980. Now it's down to about 68% and declining, as Frank Rich likes to celebrate. Um, So it's a smaller share of the electorate. uh, But it's been true, I think, for a long time that the white working class, people with high school educations, uh, living often not in the big cities, um, they've been de-aligning from the Democratic Party for a long time, but didn't really become partisan Republicans necessarily. They do account for what made Ronald Reagan's victories into landslides. If you'd had sort of just a traditional Republican candidate, Reagan wins, I think, pretty easily, but you know, especially in 1984, the people we called Reagan Democrats made that 84 election into a massive landslide. Some of you who know this may know that Macomb County, uh, Michigan, that's sort of the great swing county, it went big for Reagan. Bill Clinton got a lot of those voters back, see, and kept them, and a lot of them stayed uh, with Barack Obama, as Arlie mentioned, although a lot of them just didn't vote for several elections under President Bush, George W. Bush, and then also under Obama. A lot of them stayed home. Uh, So they are, in political science terms, the swing, uh, sorry, the median voter. That's the term we political scientists use, the ones who uh, uh, who determine the outcome of elections. Um, Arlie mentioned something that I've seized upon. I usually talk about it this way. I was struck during the primaries, especially in the states that had open primaries, The number of people who showed up in polls and talked to bewildered journalists who said, I'm undecided between Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. You you would think that there could be no greater difference than a sort of Vermont socialist and a Manhattan billionaire. 
But there you were. And, and as the survey data shows, I don't know if you mentioned the numbers already, but the surveys say between 20 and 30 percent of Bernie voters voted for Trump in November. I don't think this is entirely brand new. Um, if you go back and look at the 1972 Democratic primaries, a lot of voters would show up in polls saying, on the Democratic primaries would say they were undecided between George Wallace and George McGovern. That also doesn't make a lot of sense if you, you know, think uh, you're sort of politically engaged person. But the point is, these voters are sort of non-aligned um, and up for grabs. And as I say, Bill Clinton did a very good job of reaching them. Now, Arley suggests, I didn't quite put it this way, but the way I took it or the way I'd modify it is, a lot of these voters are saying, no one's talking to us. You just want to say that. I think this is right. What did the Republicans offer the white working class? Well, think back four years ago. Uh, Republicans offered Mitt Romney. Nice, decent man, but what is he? He's a you know, Wall Street guy, essentially, who did what? Talked about the 47% who won't vote for me because they don't pay taxes. The kind of thing Ronald Reagan would never have said and wouldn't have thought. Uh, and, and what was his economic plan? Now, of course, Paul Ryan was his running mate. I know Paul. I like him. I agree with him a lot of things. But uh, they both suffer the defect of their economic plan was, well, the investor class is who we have to have tax cuts for. For the record, I disagree with that now. That might have made sense in 1980. I think it makes much less sense now. But that's a subject for another time. But that's what they're offering. So, you know, if you're the uh, unemployed coal miner, the unemployed auto worker in Wisconsin or Ohio, does that have any appeal to you? I don't think so. Uh, and so it was very easy for the Obama campaign to uh, you know, run a campaign against Richie Rich. I mean, you know, Romney just sort of had it. John McCain was no better four years before. He adopted a tax cut plan because he thought, well, maybe some of you heard this or maybe not. It's part of conservative lore. Uh, the late political journalist Robert Novak said that, Repub- that God put the Republican Party on the planet to cut taxes, and other than that, they're not worth a darn. And they're trying to prove that again right now. Um, so that brings you to Trump. What did Trump do? Um, it, it's, it's really weird to say he was an effective communicator to, about a person who does not speak in complete sentences. <laughs> right? Um, but he treated them with respect. Here I think you want to contrast. I mean, we know, uh, you know Hillary Clinton really did walk back as fast as she could to remark about so many of Trump's supporters are from a basket of deplorables, you know, racists and all the rest of that. And you know, that, that was, she, I think she knew immediately that was a mistake to say something like that. But remember, she also said, we're going to put a lot of coal miners and coal mining companies out of business. Now, that got seized upon and exploited by Trump, who said, what, I love coal miners. Right? This is just say, what did Romney say? I don't know what he said, but I'm sure it was like, well, we're going to work on a research program on carbon capture and sequestration so we can keep our coal-fired power plants going. You know, which is going to move absolutely nobody. To be fair to Hillary, she did say, and I think this is an important point, she did say the whole context, she said, look, you know, I want to have a program that invests a lot of money in job retraining and to build new industries for the coal miners who are unemployed. That got left out. The problem, though, is, is that I don't think those, um, those promises from politicians are believable anymore. Uh, liberal politicians in particular have been promising to revive Appalachia since Lyndon Johnson. And I think now uh, people don't believe that much anymore. So that's why it didn't get covered, why it didn't work. Plus, people remember that Hillary said, you're you know, a bunch of deplorables, um, right? I don't think that worked terribly well. Um, I'll conclude with this. Uh, I was an anti-Trumper. Um, I didn't think he could possibly win the nomination. 
I didn't think he could possibly win the election. I thought the Republicans have nominated the only person who could lose to Hillary Clinton. And conversely, I think it is possible Bernie Sanders might have beaten Trump. You don't know what would have happened in a sustained fall campaign, but I I think there's a plausible case for that. Um, I have come reluctantly to the view that maybe the pro-Trump people are right that he was the only Republican who could beat Hillary Clinton. I have a whole lot of reasons for thinking that. Um, One of the curious things is is, um, the case against that. I'll just do it this way. Uh, I thought, yeah, Trump's going to turn out a lot of those disaffected white working class voters who've been staying at home or not voting or maybe voting for Obama twice. Uh, But he was going to lose so many voters. He was going to lose a lot of especially suburban women. And he did. A lot of Republican, traditional Republican strongholds, he did very poorly. He barely won Orange County. Where, which, where Romney won handily four years ago. Uh, and I didn't think he would, would make up those numbers. Uh, he actually got more Hispanic votes than Romney did. I thought, that was, I thought it was going to plunge Hispanic votes Republicans down into the single digits, like Republican share of the black vote, right? He got 33%, something like that. Romney got 30 or 29. I'm still baffled by that. Um, although I've, you know, heard things. Anyway. Um, and then a lot of Republicans who had opposed Trump, like Marco Rubio in Florida, uh, Pat Toomey in Pennsylvania, ran far ahead of him in those states. So you'd say, surely Marco Rubio or Jeb Bush or Scott Wall- somebody, pick anybody, maybe even Ted Cruz, really unappealing guy, would have run better based on how so many Republican members of Congress ran more strongly than Trump did. I'm not sure that's correct. I actually think, and especially in the case of Ron Johnson, who won a very narrow re-election in Wisconsin, uh, that Trump brought them in on their coattails. Those candidates kept a lot more of the traditional Republican vote than Trump did, but their margins of all those voters who came out for Trump and then voted kind of in a straight-ticket fashion because straight-ticket voting has been coming back for the last 20 years actually made it bigger. So I'm at this point, people ask me to predict the future, and... Say, look, I can't even predict the past. <laughs> I was so bad about all this. I don't know what to predict. Uh, but, um, you know, there we are. That, that's sort of my reading on things. And I'll just stop there and we can go to questions. And things. Thank you, Steve. Um, now we're going to call on uh, Shana from the Berkeley Forum to ask the first two questions. And then we'll move to the conversation. Shana? Thanks so much to GSPP for, for partnering with us and to the panelists for, for being here today. We're, we're really excited to get the opportunity to, to work with this event, and I'm really excited to get the opportunity to ask a couple questions. Um, so, so with that uh, in mind, um, you, you both spoke <coughs> in your speeches about, in different respects, a, a deep cultural divide and a, a sort of lack of trust in, in fellow citizens that you see as having developed um, either in recent years or, or over the course of, of several decades. What factors do you see as having created these cultural differences, to a certain extent, resentment and, and, and antipathy, and um, where, where do you see this going in the future? Do you want to go first? All right. Um, um, it's a great question, and um, uh, I think in a way I uh, touched on part of it, that the, 
structural mechanisms through which we used to get to know each other um, across uh, divides of uh, region, class, race, um, aren't really serving us. They're not there. And so uh, I think that's part of the problem that we... um, Sociological studies show that in general, when people get uh, to know each other, you know, they become neighbors. Uh, they like each other. That there's contact in general um, produces uh, that result. So, uh, separation would be one thing I would do, and, and then I would say that um, uh, actually there's for, I think, economic reasons, a new structural divide. And for people on the coasts and highly educated uh, people, actually, uh, things are getting better. And for uh, working class people, things are getting worse. And I think Trump spoke to a sense of loss and fear and sadness. I mean, sometimes his, you know, he can look very grim you know, and I thought, whoa, kind of like that. But in a way, it was like, this is bad, you know. And I think um, Hillary had a, a good news face, you know, smiling. Look, there's American dream where just have to work, we'll get there. So I think he's, that there are different economic fates and that Trump spoke to the fate of an important sector, white working class. And he promised, he presented himself as a savior. I think it was like a secular rapture. (laughs) Coming down and, you know, you too can be like me. So um, I think they're being had, um, but I think that was the very powerful appeal. Different economic fates of these sectors. Steve, what would you do with that? Yeah, um... People being had. Well, I I won't disagree to the extent that there's something absolutely fantastically impossible about a populace coming from a 55 story luxury tower in Manhattan. (laughs) Populace come from Nebraska. William Jennings Bryan. This is is the weirdest thing ever. Um, I think he has some instincts for this that are are quite interesting. I think I'll just uh, put this again in a broader context. This isn't just happening here, right? This is happening in Europe. Uh, it's happening in a lot of the leading industrial democracies. Uh, just to pick two examples, there's the Brexit vote. You know, on election night, Bill Clinton, very shrewd guy, said, boy, I guess this Brexit thing is for real. And if you follow that, the Brexit vote was, uh, what made a majority, was a odd coalition of a lot of working class labor voters. You remember the Brexit, both party establishments were against it. And, and then you had a lot of uh, the conservative vote in the rural areas. Um, uh, that put it over the top, uh, a completely unlikely coalition ideologically. Uh, the French vote, uh, if you look at the geographical distribution of Marine Le Pen, who still got, what, almost 40% of the vote for president, a really nasty person. Austria. And it's Austria, okay. Austria last week, and then Germany here recently. So Germany yeah. maybe is most interesting. You have this very right-wing party that came from zero to 85 seats in the Bundestag at a time when the economy is doing really well. They don't, Germany doesn't, I don't think Germany has our kind of problem with a quote-unquote white working class of less educated people with dismal economic prospects or an opioid problem and all those things. So it's happening everywhere. And 
Immigration's part of it. I think we have to acknowledge that. The survey data about Brexit showed that that was on the mind of a lot of the pro-Brexit voters, even though that's really not what the original impulse against the European Union is, and, you know, we don't like these Brussels people. Uh, by the way, if you've never, a lot of you probably have seen the old Yes Prime Minister series. It's 25, it's 30 years old, but there's all stuff about what's wrong with Brussels in there that sounds very contemporary. I use some scenes from that uh, old series in classes. Um, holds up extremely well. Uh, so I think, um, I think that's part of it. I'll mention one other thing quickly. I don't want to go on too long. But another thing that surprised me was that Trump got the highest share ever of Republicans of evangelical and religious voters, well over 80%. I mean, I can remember when Jimmy Carter got the majority of those votes because, of course, he was a well-advertised born-again Christian. And I would have thought, okay, uh, evangelicals, uh, they don't care for liberals and Democrats in Washington and so forth. Uh, but... I mean, Trump? I mean, come on, right? Um, you no, know, uh, when he was uh, asked, yeah. well, uh, what chapter of the Bible oh, was right. his favorite? <laughs> uh, well, I like them all. Right? Yeah. <laughs> well, or there was this uh, that great moment at Liberty University when, uh, the way I rendered it was, two Corinthians walk into a bar, you know, yeah. right? <laughs> so that was just, you know... Right. I mean, it was so. Uh, I will say. I mean, he did punch all their hot buttons on abortion, and yeah, I think it's important. Yeah. But then also, I, 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 want to, I don't want to go too long here. I do think that part of that phenomenon can be explained in the title of one court case, and that was United States versus Little Sisters of the Poor. Not even the big sisters of the poor, yeah. right? I mean, there's a lot more cases. There's the Hobby Lobby case and other stuff, and. You know, this opens up onto the controversies over transgenderism and bathrooms and all these things that exploded almost out of nowhere for the last couple of years. And look, a lot of uh, there's some survey and the media misses this because I think the media, they don't understand this world. They don't cover it very well. Uh, right. Um, despite occasional sporadic attempts to try. Um, uh, but uh, a lot of evangelicals thought that, you know, the government is hostile to us. We think it's going to get worse under Hillary Clinton. And so we're going to swallow any personal reservations we have about Donald Trump and vote for him in big numbers. I think that's something that liberals ought to reckon with them. Well, along those lines, yeah. uh, with this, this deep cultural difference, um, you both spoke about uh, how the Democratic Party has failed to reach these voters and how similar trends are being seen across Europe with traditional social democratic parties. Do you think there's a way for the Democratic Party or parties like Labour in, in the European Union to recapture some of their traditional vote in the white working class, and what would that look like? Okay, yes. Um, you know, to go back to the deep story... I think it wasn't. It isn't immigrants that are cutting in line, we, we, or not only, right. and and not blacks. They haven't done. Uh, they haven't really improved their family income in the last forty years. So, um, and uh, I don't think it's women. I believe it's robots <laughs> that oh. are actually a cutting in line. If we look, mm. and neither left nor right are talking about. Automation. Automation is, I think, the uh, it's the elephant in the living room, and uh, it's hit already hit the white working class first, and it's coming to the middle class and fast. I believe that Donald Trump's policies exacerbate uh, the rate of automation, but that you ask how to address the issue, I would. 
address that issue um, head on. Um, now, what can be done, job retraining, and as you said, Hillary did have that, but people haven't seen it um, close up. They haven't seen it work. Um, let me just tell you, a, a, I think, a great story about a, a, a Democratic congressman, Ro Khanna. He uh, represents Silicon Valley and um, Google, Facebook, Intel, Yahoo. That's his constituency. And he said uh, to me on the phone, you know, half my constituency are Asian. I'm Asian myself. But I made uh, a, an alliance with a Republican uh, congressman from Paintsville, Kentucky. And I brought a job training program to, uh, may, uh, it, to learn coding for apps for cell phones. They set up a program in Paintsville that had these unemployed coal miners. And there they were learning uh, how to do coding. It's a two-year program. It was paid for, and they were promised a $40,000 a year job if they passed this course. And the first 30 uh, have graduated. And you know what they call themselves? Silicon Hollow. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a way to really address uh, this issue and uh, cross the divide, too. Oh, you were, we're in heated agreement on this point, especially the automation one. I mean, if you think it's bad when someone says, they shipped my job to Mexico, wait till you get, they ship, they gave my job to a robot. And, but the, the whole, so, you know, if you can, there's actually been maps of this. What's the leading job for an unskilled or high school educated white male and actually male doesn't be white driving trucks cabs delivery services ubers things like that and they pay pretty well for the most part you know uh, you can get a high school degree and if you want to move to Williston North Dakota you can make 90,000 bucks a year to start driving one of those oil trucks you got to have a class 3 license whatever it is but that's not too hard to get and if that goes away Oh, that could be huge. These are male jobs, too. Yes, I was looking right. at a McKinsey uh, study, you can get it online, of automation. And uh, it, it, uh, what it does is look at skills and study some 80 different occupations. And a lot of them are white male jobs. For example, on the oil rigs, uh, we're moving from hiring the Petros are uh, 10 guys per rig to five. Yeah. The five uh, are lost jobs due to automation. Yeah. And it's hard to get mad at a robot. You know, well, I mean, we can, you know, that, the, the that Luddites used to immigrant. smash them up, the early versions, so we may see that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's, um, there's a second aspect, though, that I think is a huge opening for Democrats. Um, Trump doesn't really have very good answers for any of this. He could easily lose a lot of those voters. I, think I could also easily keep them. I could explain that. But on the, yeah. on the policy front... What did Trump say? I'm going to spend a trillion dollars on infrastructure. Well, where is that, right? It's not really happening. Uh, Republicans don't really have a lot of enthusiasm for that because that's old-fashioned spending and the deficit's really huge. And so, it's to privatize roads and well, what's public I, would be it, it's, it's, oh, There's all kinds of problems in the no, details no. of it. But I think the opening for Democrats would be to say, where's that infrastructure Trump promised us? We'll do it. Right. And you could right. get a little further down the road and, right. and, and even localize and say, we're going to do this in Ohio, we're going to do this in Wisconsin, and you know, these jobs will start. 
I think that's a huge opening uh, that Trump is leaving for them. So. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Gina. Thank you guys so much for answering my questions. So we're talking about feelings of dislocation, being pushed out of line. Is there a basis from, let's just say, left and right to have some kind of 99% coalition, not the 1%, or a working class coalition? And where does race fit into that? And are these people who you seem to really like does race interfere with that kind of coalition? And how do parties on either side yeah. deal with that? Great. Um, I um, uh, look to uh, the um, Reverend William Barber II. He's the Moral Mondays guy, who uh, is really, I think, the heritor of the tradition of Martin Luther King. And he What he does is take race, but he incorporates other issues. And he is now organizing a a national um, um, movement for poor children. So you've got both class and race there. And uh, for Mother's Day. So he's, he's a symbol hitter, too. Um, this, this coming Mother's Day is uh, organized 30 cities. I just heard him give a talk in New York. Uh, so I think that's the way to go. I think race has long been there. Uh, and um, it, it, it raises its racism, raises its ugly head every so often. The 1890s, the 1920s, under Woodrow Wilson, he was really like a, a Ku Klux Klan guy. So nothing new, actually, with Trump. But he's reawakened this racism in a terrifying way. Um, and I think, uh, I, I think our way is to address it head on, to get out of our silos. I, I guess that would be my message to Berkeley. Let's not just talk to each other and scold each, each other. That it, in a way, the moral, a healthy moral impulse, I think, has been turned inward. And what we need to do, and it's, it's sort of focused on language and, and particular identities, and I think what we need to do is get back to what Berkeley was an extraordinary model for. This was a class of 1968 that really knew about social movements uh, to address real uh, issues. And um, so uh, I guess I'm answering it more in terms of what we should do. But um, I don't think in the book that I, I talk about race a lot, but the people that I talk to kind of say, oh, I know that you guys think we're racist. You know, just hang around and come back and hang around and come back. And sort of race was talked a little bit about, but uh, they are, were very eager not to be associated with the alt-right in Charlottesville. So I guess what this tells us is that there are a sector of white working class people who do feel a grievance as white working class people, but who don't want to be associated in our minds or theirs with, with uh, 
racist policies. So there's something to work with there. They're not all deplorable. So I have, I have two thoughts, if I can split it in half. One is, um, I actually think, you talk about 90, 90% overlap. That may be a little ambitious. But I think there. Well, no, I meant the 1% versus the 90%. Oh, in the well, field. that's where I'm going with all that. Oh, okay, perfect. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, uh, so I actually think there is an opening now uh, to consider the idea of a universal basic income. There are a number of people on the right who've been. The most unlikely person of all, uh, Charles Murray wrote a book 10 years ago saying we ought to have a universal basic income. He did the math to be more expensive than our current menu of welfare services. But yeah, he lived. Friedman was the one who first put it forward. Right. And, of course, it went down in flames when Nixon proposed a version of it. That's an interesting story. Um, but if you think about two things, one is, is um, uh, you know, if you get this fast automation revolution, it will, uh, it, will continue, it will even deepen the trend we're seeing now that here's something liberals are absolutely right about. All the, almost all the gains, what, what little economic growth we're having is going to the upper income, the first 2, 3, 4, 5%, right? That is a huge problem. Now, it gets worse if you have this sort of broad-scale automation. Just think of what the, if you're a big trucking company, what, what happens to your profit margins if you get rid of an entire labor force that you've got to pay health insurance for and all these things? They make out like bandits, right? They do really well. Um, so universal basic income, and I say there are a number of conservatives who are for it, and I think there's a space to think about that. Now, on the question of, and there's something of appeal, especially to those non-aligned working class voters that we're going to do something that at least promises some stability in your life and your economic circumstance. A lot to be said about that. Now, the, the question of race, so how much time have we got? Um, <laughs> Let me just make one general comment sure. about it that I think it's been lost in some of the particular ways we're fighting about it these days. Um, and here there's a parallel with environmental issues, I think. I was an environmental policy wonk, and I was reading with great interest some of your descriptions of circumstances, scratching my head on some of them. But I think there's a similarity between the environmental controversies we have and the racial controversies we have that is not noticed. And I think it, it, this is only one aspect, but it's one that's lost. Uh, in the case of the environment and in the case of race, we did the easy things 40, 50 years ago. We passed the Clean Air Act. We passed the Clean Water Act. We built secondary wastewater treatment for sewage. All that stuff was, it cost money. But, and then and, you know, the Civil Rights Act got rid of state action and discriminatory laws. Now we're trying to get at the hard stuff. We're, in the environment, we're trying to get after stormwater runoff of farm fields, which is not, you can't fix it with a pipe or a regulation from the EPA. It's a lot harder. It's difference by circumstance. And in, I take very seriously the, all the work on implicit racial bias, and I follow some of the literature on this. And there, you, you can't fix that with a law. We can try some, but it's a lot harder problem with you know, subtle forms of discrimination that happen uh, against minorities and women. And uh, so, first of all, yeah, it does need to be recognized. Can I just tell a quick story? Sorry, I don't want to go too long. At Pepperdine, which is a conservative school, uh, I had a number of uh, black students, some of whom were conservative Republicans. They love Ronald Reagan. Yeah. Couldn't tell them enough about Ronald Reagan. You know what else they liked? They liked Black Lives Matter a lot. Thought, this is interesting. Tell me more about this. Because, uh, uh, right? And, and they didn't always agree with their tactics. They said, no, I don't think they should block roads and you know, other things. But... They're with them. And that's because in every case, in one case, this uh, one young lady I had in the class, her father's a very prosperous doctor, lives in Westlake, so she drives a fancy car, like most students at Pepperdine do. Uh, and she gets pulled over a lot for stuff like not having a turn signal on. Usually doesn't get a ticket, but what's, everybody knows what's going on there. 
That's why she likes Black Lives Matter, right? Uh, and I have other students tell me the same stories, right? So, uh, yeah, and I will, I will do a mea culpa that conservatives have been too resistant to taking this seriously. And then part of they get called racist, and they say, fine, I'm going to check out and do something else, right? And so we don't talk about these things at all. So that's what I'd say. My, my view is this is actually a lot harder than passing the Civil Rights Act, which was really hard, as you know, everyone knows. Um, and so, yeah, we, we do have a lot to do on that, and it's going to be hard. Let me, let me pose a political question. Um, Hillary was a damaged candidate. There had been decades of efforts to discredit her, to create a narrative that she was untrustworthy, she was whatever. So whatever the merits of her individually, she was a very damaged candidate. She almost won, despite (laughs) everything else. What's wrong with... Democrats going back to the Obama coalition, not pandering or reaching out or trying to incorporate these white working class voters and just have a less damaged candidate. And what does that mean for the prospects of, number one, winning the presidency? But then there's a second question. What does that mean for being able to govern? Because Obama was able to win, but he was barely able to govern because he didn't have a Congress in support. So how do you view these issues going forward? Uh, That's a great question. In other words, um, if we just gotten the vote out, the Democratic vote out, we could be in a different situation. You've raised two issues. One is, why talk to these people? Is that... uh, misspent energy. And I think that's a great question we have to ask. And my personal answer is it is this, that we, the times call for, uh, I'm speaking about uh, two progressives, <laughs> such as myself, um, for three pillars of activism. The first is to do um, everything we can to preserve a system of checks and balances and democracy itself. We never thought we'd have to, but I I think that's the first goal. Uh, So that means um, uh, the independence of the press, the judiciary. That's that's pillar one. And you you don't even have to talk to uh, Trump voters uh, to get active on that. Pillar two is to is electoral politics and the revamping of the democratic platform so that it speaks to some of the grievances, including the robots cutting in line. And um, that, again, you don't need to talk to anybody uh, to do that. But pillar three, and I'm giving these in, in order, in my view, of it, priority. So I don't think that talking across the, the line is is the most important thing, actually. But I do believe that it can help us with Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 if we know how um, you know, folks out there that are Trump supporters, how they see things. So we'll know how to talk to them. And again, we can select who we talk to, as per it could be the uh, former Obama supporters can talk to former Bernie supporters. Talk to them perhaps first. And so 
you don't have to talk um, to people you disagree with, but you do, I believe, have to appreciate that doing so can help you uh, in, in what should be a coordinated three-pillar um, approach to this political moment. Yeah, so I guess, uh, I guess what I think, two thoughts. It might work. But I think there's some good reasons to think it might not. And don't take my word for it. Uh, just check in with Rui Teixeira and John Judas, who wrote the book, The Emerging Democratic Majority, in 2001. They've changed their mind a bit. They're saying, we're not so sure it actually works. Those are two lovely guys, by the way. I like them both a ton. I know them a little bit. Um, and I could go through the, some of the reasons why, but it would take too long. I, but I think a simpler one is this. You know, there's really no substitute for charisma in politics. And boy, did Obama have that. Right. And then Trump, in a certain animalistic way, had it, too. Right. And, and this is problematic in politics. Right. Uh, going back at least to Max Weber and all his talk about charisma. Um, and I mean, it really does count for a lot. So right now, yeah, people, this is why there's a lot of excitement for Kamala Harris. Who's, she might have that, too, once she gets out and starts going. Um, maybe Cory Booker. Uh, maybe one or two others, that they might be able to recapture that magic. But I think it's more that than demographics. I'll just add that one of my best friends knew Obama at Occidental College during his two years there. And they both spoke at a rally one day. My friend's an athlete, and, you know, he's not, and Obama spoke after him. I remember this because there was this picture of Obama in the New York Times three four years ago, and I spotted my friend Tony there. And I go, Tony, that's you sitting there, isn't it? I recognize his physique. He says, yeah. And, I remember him telling me when Obama emerged, he says, oh, I remember that guy, and we spoke together one day, and I talked, and, you know, smattering of applause. He got up and talked, and I said, oh, my God, is that guy good. It was obvious then that this guy had it, right? Uh, so, it, you know, Michael Barone, uh, you know, a very smart political analyst, done doing the Almanac of American politics for years, he wrote after the 2008 election that he thinks Obama is maybe a one-time phenomenon. Maybe so, maybe not. Uh, we'll see. I, I'm, it's an open question. But I wouldn't necessarily rest my hopes on the demographic wave working the way it's been thought. Well, let me ask just a follow-up to that. What is the future of America if we don't reach out to everybody? And what does that say about our future as a country? Oh, well, that's very bad. Yes, right. No, I'm not, I mean, um, yes. Um, I, I mean, I'm not sure what to add to that except to say emphatic yes. So we want to throw this open to you all. There is a mic out here. Um, if you have questions, if you could raise your hand, and Lynn and Hannah will reach out to you. Hi. Thank you so much for this fascinating discussion. I learned so much. Um, I hadn't thought about universal basic income, so I'm definitely going to look into that. One question that I have that was not brought up is about the role of the Internet and communication via the Internet and the way that we're drawn into these silos of communication. Um, so one example would be um, myself being progressive. So I would be, say, looking in at uh, Robert Reich's posts on Facebook. But the other day, I decided to look at um, a post on Fox News, which was of the of speech that uh, Paul Ryan gave the other day at a dinner where he was being humorous, and there was some criticism of it. So I thought, oh, I want to see what people are saying. So I clicked on it, and um, as he was speaking, it was a, a video. Um, I get, people had an opportunity to comment on it or to say whether they liked it or if they loved it or if they hated it, and a lot of people hated it, but... What was so offensive to me was when I saw the comments, and so many of them were about build the wall, build the wall, build the wall. I'm a person who 
I'm a person who feels has a strong feeling about that. I, I was I grew up in San Diego near the border. I'm Mexican American, so it was just so interesting. But I just had a glimpse into that silo, and I think that those silos, I mean, they're so important, and they've influenced people so much um, around the country. For example, um, among um, so the groups that you've been talking about, the white middle class, um, you know, and I just wanted to ask you, what do you think about that? How do we bridge that divide? Because it's so hard. Every, you know, if you're talking to people, at least you can talk. But in, in internet, it's silos and we're very separated. Thank you. That's a great uh, uh, comment. Uh, yes, we, I think uh, technology can help us and it can hurt us. Uh, what I found in my uh, uh, time in Louisiana was uh, that often people to talk with were open. They would uh, say, oh, uh, Trump, you know, I'd, I'd say, do you have any hesitations? They'd say, oh, where do I begin? You know, they were, they were open. They were nuanced. You know, there was, it could be a discussion. But then I would look at their Facebook page you gods, you know. Uh, there would, uh, for example, uh, after this whole um, uh, NFL uh, situation uh, and uh, athletes taking the knee uh, during the, the, uh, uh, the national anthem, um, one guy said, well, I'm boycotting the uh, New Orleans Saints because some of the and that I also then saw a very telling thing on Facebook of two pictures one of um, white uh, male uh, GIs and it said average wage you know $35,000 and next to it what, uh, and patriotic okay and next to it was a picture of um, NFL uh, black uh, athletes, you know, average wage uh, $9 million and won't pledge. So this was on a Facebook page. It really told me where the feelings were, but I didn't hear it in, in personal conversation. So we, um, technology reveals things, but um, it's, uh, we, you, you need to be face-to-face -to, -face to, to gradually get at those differences, I think. Yeah, so, yeah, boy, that's a big subject. Two things have changed. One is we used to have a common culture in our media. It wasn't perfect, but three networks. Everybody watched I Love Lucy. Uh, a third of America watched Walter Cronkite. Um, now, that's that, and people talk about the water cooler the next day. Now that's all gone. Now, that wasn't perfect, right? I mean, uh, there were hardly any blacks on TV, for a very long time. And maybe the only Hispanic was Ricky Ricardo. I'm not quite sure what to be made of him, but, right? Okay, so that, okay, so, and, and by the way, the proliferation now, I mean, I think we're in the golden age of television. Some of the best writing being done today is on these TV shows, but you can pick your specialties. You can't keep up with it. That's great. But the fragmentation happens. And then on the media side, uh, well, we've democratized the media, right? Anybody can now comment on the, and millions of people or thousands can see what you saw in the comment thread. It used to be you had to write a letter to the editor, and it wouldn't get printed if it was abusive and foul, or it might get edited, right? And, but it took time. 
Uh, I, I think a lot about the news cycle. As recently as the 80s, and you know, I wrote a book about the Reagan presidency, and, and even before that, back in the 60s it really starts. The cycle for a White House would be you wake up and see what's on the morning papers, and that's what I've got to cope with today. Now, this particular presidency, you wake up in the morning and say, oh, my God, what did the boss tweet last night? It's going to make my morning miserable. But the point is now these things play out in real time. By 10 o'clock, you've had a whole news cycle over it. And it's, it's just making things way more chaotic, and it's just getting worse. I don't know any way to fix that, unfortunately. Um, I, I, you know, it's the new world we're living in. There's no putting that genie back in the bottle, but it's a huge problem. There is an app now. Again, uh, if you look at the Bridge Alliance, it's called All Sides. Actually, oh, it's right. a re- yeah. Republican that's put it together. Yeah, I know the guy. Yes, that, oh, he's a friend you? of yeah, mine. Yeah, yeah. Um, that takes the same news item Uh, as it is dealt with um, left, right, and center. And so you can kind of see what uh, the perspective was, what the source was. So it's called All Sides. Um, There's a question over here. Yeah. Uh, First of all, I agree with Steve's comment that uh, things are much worse than we're oftentimes willing to acknowledge. And in that regard, uh, I wonder if both panelists could speak to the issue of fake news. We talk about having a dialogue with people, but when there's this, when the president can just say, it's not true, it's hard to have the dialogue going forward. Although I'm a progressive, I, like, you know, I was willing to accept everything Steve stated here as facts in terms of the number of people that said that. But if you have the point where that's all wrong, totally can't accept it. So I'm interested in that. And the other one is, uh, I was a TV executive, so it's painful for me to say this. But I think the media has contributed so much to this and the commercial aspects of it. First of all, the celebrity apprentice, Donald Trump. I mean, he was on there to make money, pure and simple, and that's put him up in the, you know, in the high levels of recognition and the like. But the other thing on that is I was very bothered during the presidential debates, when the party debates, Republicans and Democrats, they were commercially sponsored. I mean, unbelievable. You're not possible to give up 15 minutes of commercials for a presidential debate. And that reflects the fact that Trump got such a disproportionate amount of coverage. Why? Ratings. Why? Translates to money. So when we talk about systematic challenges we're facing, I would put commercial media in that mix. But I'd love your comments on that. Steve, why don't you take that yeah, first? Well, you know, I, no, I, I, I'm tempted to say maybe what we ought to do is a simple reform. The, those presidential debates, they, uh, the two candidates ought to look like NASCAR cars and races where they've got the sponsors' logos all over their jackets. You know, that, that might be helpful. Um, um, yeah, look, this isn't new either. The media is sensational. Uh, they go for conflict. They sacrifice depth. They do a disservice to everybody. Uh, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, the media is mostly liberal, but they're, they're more interested in conflict than they are in their ideology. Um, so the fake news problem. Uh, I'm not quite sure which way I should go uh, here on this. Um, maybe I'll do this. I think I haven't been cranky enough. Uh, I'm going to blame the left. <laughs> Here's why. This came up with alternative facts. Remember, that's the other version of it. Is what's your Kellyanne uh, Fitzpatrick? No, Kellyanne Con- I used to know her 25 years ago. She was Kellyanne Fitzpatrick. Anyway, um, she talked about alternative facts, not to get really upset. And, and I sit back and I say, well... And this could go on a long time. I don't want to. But I sort of think back to Nietzsche. to the philosopher. I'm going to run to mommy, right? Uh, 
he said, there are no facts, there is only interpretation. That's actually the cornerstone of what goes by the banner of postmodernism these days, and linguistic skepticism and lots of other things. And I think there's something to all that, but uh, uh, my sort of comeback is, is if it's really true that uh, the world is dominated by subjectivity, and sometimes you even hear from the postmodern left that objectivity itself doesn't exist or is a social construct or all these things, I sort of say, uh, you guys carried this problem. I don't see what the problem is. So, <laughs> good, that provoked Arlie. So, I didn't want to be completely too agreeable here, right? <laughs> That's a thumbnail sketch, by the way, but go ahead. Uh, yeah. Um, well, I thought you were going to go uh, into, um, you know, how the New York Times collects its uh, facts uh, with... Uh, I think it's got 80 different, you know, foreign correspondents right. and they're trained journalists and there's uh, fact-checking with it compared to, um, you know, Fox News reporters. So, uh, Well, I just, can I just interrupt yeah. to say I was on, ta- it, I was part of the conservative project a year ago for what we call the recriminations project when Trump lost. And I was, I was one of the persons who was going to write the cover story for a magazine of what's wrong with Fox News. I'll just say that oh, for the okay. record. But, yeah. so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That all went poof, good. unfortunately. That's good. That's good. Well, I, I, I take what you're saying that, in a way, fake news uh, as a huge and central uh, issue is kind of postmodernism gone haywire. You know, uh, so um, yeah, let's make it not go haywire. I don't have any, you know, great solutions to this, uh, but it comes up all the time when I talk to people on the other side. And uh, what I generally say is, "Oh, where did you hear that? <laughs> you know, where? What's the source on that?" You know, and then they would kind of, uh, "Oh, well, gee, what is the source?" Can I just add a quick footnote? Uh, if you haven't seen it, there was a remarkable interview the last week or 10 days in Der Spiegel with uh, Macron, the new president of France. Absolutely fascinating. And in the middle, he said something to warm my heart. He said, I think postmodernism is one of the worst things to happen to modern politics. So I called up a, ah, I called up a friend of mine who's a White House correspondent, Deborah Saunders from the Las Vegas Review Journal, who's a Francophile. She's friends with Havels their lives. said, Deborah, read this interview, and if you can, ask President Trump. Do you agree with President Macron that postmodernism is the worst thing to happen to politics? Then we'll sit back and watch yeah, the entertainment. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> so we have, one, we have a hard close in about a minute, but oh. we'll have one quick. I'm being. Yeah. Thanks for the great discussion. My name is Rafał Szmanowski. I'm a visiting student researcher here through Fulbright program, and I came from Europe. So because you've mentioned the European situation, I just wanted to briefly add something. I agree that there is a great social divide across the Europe, but it is much greater in Great Britain than, for example, in Germany or Belgium. And I would argue that it has a lot to do with economic policy. It is no accident that Great Britain has adopted kind of similar economic policies to the U.S., that Great Britain has a booming financial sector, weak labor unions, and rising income inequality. Germany still is a social market economy or a coordinated market economy. It has strong unions. Therefore, the extent of the social divide is much, much smaller. So I think that we have to take it into consideration. Thanks very much. So I want to thank... I want to thank you all for coming... Um, we have some gifts for our panelists. I will give them to you. 
Thank you. Dan. <laughs> I, I want to thank I want I want to thank the Berkeley Forum. I want to thank the. Um, um, Center on Civility and Democratic Engagement, and you heard a lot of different letters, GSPP and Center. GSPP is the Goldman School for Public Policy. The Center is within the Goldman School, just in case there was any confusion. And I hope that uh, you come out to each of our events in the future. And again, thank you very much for coming. Thank you.